It is the pastor's heart and Dominic Steele. Thanks for joining us today. Manning up as a husband and father with Al Stewart. Don't be selfish, says Al Stewart. That's the secret to being a husband. Al has a new book out, Getting Masculinity Right, the manual. He is the Australian director of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. And Al, thanks for coming in. We, we talked to you a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. The first, I don't know, 10 chapters, but we left out the big issues at the back on a husband and father. Um, selfishness, it doesn't just creep in. It's there from the start. <laughs> I think what I've I've said is, I'll stick my neck out here, the, the default setting for every human being is selfishness. And I think particularly uh, us men can be guilty of it. And I think you see it uh, perhaps most profoundly in the most profound relationship, marriage. Mm-hmm. And that is blokes very easily lapse into selfishness. And I've, I've seen a lot of marriages, and I've seen one in particular for 40 years, and I, I think men are much more likely to be be selfish, and a woman is much more likely to carry more than her her weight and her share in a marriage. How do you change from going out when you're trying to win her to being selfish when you're married? Oh, I think it's a, yeah. When you meet her, everything's new and shiny, and you're you're wonderful, etc. But once you're married and things settle down, it's very easy to find yourself, you know, on the couch with the remote control while she carries more than her weight. So. I, I, I just think you, you need the correction. You need to push blokes, stop being selfish. And that really is, I think I would say, that really is a key to marriage. In fact, every relationship, I think. You didn't tell this story in the book, but I remember you telling me a story years ago about you and chicken feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, okay. It's not really well, selfish. <laughs> it's not really selfish. I start going out with this beautiful, sophisticated Chinese lady. Uh, we go out to eat with her family. They're not particularly happy about her going out with me. The food comes out. There's the chook's feet. I took one for the team and I ate a couple of chook's feet at Yumcha. But i got to say, once we're married, the chook's feet came out. I said, no, I've done it. <laughs> so I know I should eat the chook's feet, but I, uh, I dodged that one. Mm. Headship and submission, mm-hmm. Christian marriage in mm-hmm. evangelical marriage. What's mm-hmm. that look like? Well, the Bible's clear on it. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says um, that the husband is the head of the wife in the same same pattern in a way that Jesus is head of the church. Now, what does that what does headship look like? Well, as he fills out the content of that, uh, men are called on to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church. That is, he laid down his life. Now, that love rarely is going to be one great event where you give you you lay down your life for your wife. Although it's interesting, it does happen, isn't it? When you get a mass shooting or whatever. Mm. Interesting how often men throw themselves physically over a wife to protect her. Yeah, I was working at the radio station the day the Bravery Awards came out for Port Arthur. Yes. um, uh, Front page of the the Daily Telegraph, um, these nine men died for their women. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, (laughs) the breakfast announcement, it was a comedy breakfast show, walked into the newsroom and I said, oh, look at this, eight men, no, nine men died for their wives and this comedian who was hosting breakfast on our FM radio station said, yep, we can stop the men from opening the door for us, but we can't stop them dying for us. Yeah. 
I think it's hardwired into men. And we'd like to think at our best we would do that for our wives, for those we love. What's harder is... Every day. ...getting off your bum and going empty the dishwasher again and again and again. Um, and, and, well, I think what headship means is deliberately taking the initiative to love and care and look after her in loving ways. Um, interesting, the word leadership isn't there. It's the idea of love her and get busy with that, and that, that's what headship looks like. When your thesis right through this book is, as a man, use your power, the power that you have, yeah. for the good of others. And so yes. You're really saying, how does this apply in marriage? Well, husbands have a great deal of power. Not only usually, usually is a husband bigger and physically stronger than his wife, yes. Um, and then there's also the idea that childbirth puts a woman... At, at a disadvantage, you know, you're vulnerable. But also God tells her to be submissive to him. So that puts her in a If he misuses that power, he really has the opportunity, yeah, he has the opportunity to misuse that. Uh, now, it's up, it passes the rest of the community. We need to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, um, now, what does submission look like? It's not being a doormat or whatever. I, I think another way of saying it is... If, as he loves and cares for and lays down his life for her, that's the gold standard. Submission is she should respond to make that easy for him. How does she respond to that in a way that makes that easy and as kind of as pleasant as possible? When you get those two gold standards working together, it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that's the ideal that's set up in Ephesians 5. And if you like, that's little m marriage. And then the Apostle Paul says the capital M marriage is Jesus and his church in the way that he lays down his life for her and she responds in that way. Mm. Um, now, given sin and selfishness, there's all sorts of mess, but Ephesians 5 sets the, the gold standard. And it, it calls on men, <laughs> stop being selfish. Now, I'm not saying I've got there, but I, I can see that that's... That's the way marriage works properly. Tell us about some seasons where you and Kathy have got it really right and, uh, and then perhaps not so well. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. Um, uh, I think we're in a pretty good place it's now. Just us. Right? Yeah, yeah, just us. I think we're in a pretty good place now. We've been married 41 years. Um, I'm trying to learn to be more considerate of her, of understanding uh, she makes decisions much slower than I do. She's more thoughtful about things. It's me trying to slow down, be more considerate of how she makes decisions. Um, she's uh, the Chinese culture brings different world views to Anglo culture, etc. Where have we got it wrong? I think mostly me overworking. Me just being so busy out trying to change the world that I neglected her, wasn't around enough, etc. And that's made for some rocky times. Um, uh, culturally, she's been brought up to be more likely to be the quiet, um, non-complaining wife. Uh, the good news is that she's learnt to tell me. Mm -hmm. Boy, she learned to tell me, and that's been that's been good. But that mainly, it's me overworking, me wanting to push ahead. I think I've got mild ADHD. She calls it my acronyms. Uh, so those sort of things. But forty-one years of just turning up, we are learning how to 
you know, how to get on. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between love and emotion? Uh, good question. Uh, I think emotion is the feelings that you have. The way that the New Testament defines agape or agape, the love, is actually acting in someone else's best interest. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that Paul commands love in many places and commands husbands to love their wives. Uh, in the book, I've got an interesting quote from, you, you can't command emotion, but C.S. Lewis has got that interesting thing saying, it's as you act in love towards someone, very often those emotions will come as mm. well. So... Um, I think if we're talking marriage, I think your feelings for your partner will go up and down. You'll feel madly in love sometimes and other times not so much. But it, but you can control your actions and very often emotions will follow your actions. Yeah. I remember meeting a, uh, a Christian guy in India and uh, mm-hmm. uh, he, like me, was... We, we were the same age, we had the same age wives, we had the same number of kids, we both married doctors, but his was an arranged marriage mm. and mine wasn't. And um, and uh, I remember having dinner with him at his house in India and just being so struck by, oh, all my prejudices about arranged marriages being smashed to pieces because mm. it was mm. imposed on him and yet he had grown into that love. Yep, yeah. That's, that fits with everything I've heard about it, yeah. yeah. I think our society's methods on dating and uh, marriage and hooking up, and uh, we're not doing that well, mm. yeah. Talk to me about the word respect. Yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote the book. Respect, okay. I just thought it was interesting. At the, at the end of Paul's passage on, on marriage, he doesn't say husbands and wives should love one another. He says husbands should love their wives and wives should treat their husbands with respect. Or you could translate the word uh, treat their husbands with awe. Now, having your wife hold you in awe is probably, you know, maybe setting the bar a bit too high, so we've gone for respect. But, th- but there is a difference. Now, the book by, um, I can't remember his first name, Edrich's Love and Respect, I think he really nails it Mm -hmm. because he talks about what uh, his thesis is what women want is is love and and you know concern and feeling safe and secure in the relationship but what men want is respect namely to be taken seriously and there there is a difference you can you can love your two-year-old and, and treat him or her, etc., love them, but you don't respect them in the same way. Mm. And I think what men, if you ask most men, here's my thesis, you ask most men, do you want to be loved or do you want to be respected? They'll go for respect. Mm. Now, you just see that in Ephesians 5. Yeah, I, th- I remember somebody saying to me, people think that men spell love S-E-X, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we actually spell it R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yes, respect. Yep. And uh, I think that's right. And I think, um, I mean, there was a book out, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, Finding the Hero in Your Husband. Oh, yeah. I, yep. Which I found insulting when I saw it on my wife's bedside table. <laughs> Is it that so hard to find at, at least, a book? <laughs> at least she was looking, Dominic. At least she was looking. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, that is what I want. I do want to be respected. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of what men do in terms of how they want to be seen by other men is all about respect. 
you know, the car you drive, the, the job you have, the office you have, the uh, house you get. It's all about, you know, respect, mm. the love of the world around or the respect or status from the world around mm. you. Now, I just think it's interesting that, that Paul uses those two different terms to men and women in Ephesians 5. Yeah, I noticed my wife actually interacted with my son, our sons, particularly as they were late teens and early mm-hmm. 20s. You'd hear lines from her saying, I believe you can do it, you know. You yeah, know, which is okay. showing that she had confidence, showing that she yeah. had respect that, yeah. that they'd be able to follow through. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, um, what about men and abusing power in relationships, um, and particularly in the marriage relationship and domestic? Uh, and kind of thing? Uh, sadly, it does happen. I think it's positively that our our society, our churches are more aware of that. It's not being swept under the carpet like like often it was, or not as much being swept under the carpet as it was before. And our churches need to be right on the ball about protecting and caring for women mm-hmm. and calling out men who might who might do this. Yeah. Right. Now, there is, you know, statistically, um, uh, some domestic abuse is women on men or couples on each other. Right. Now, statistically, yes, but the damage that a man can do on a woman is out of all proportion to what usually a woman does to a man. So that's, churches need to be right onto it. And, and you see, we have got safety protocols and so on begin, you know, in place. Um, does complementarian marriage mean set roles around the house? Uh, no. Let me say a little more. No, no, complementarian doesn't mean he looks after the money and she has to do all the cooking or whatever. I think God's gifted different people in different ways and you work out your uh, gift mix and you do what you're gifted with. So in my marriage, uh, my wife Kathy is brilliant with money and brilliant with cooking and a brilliant administrator. And so she runs the money, she organises food, etc. I tend to run our kind of our social diary, and I think longer term she'll think day to day. And so we've worked out, just kind of works out what what we're good at. I get an allowance, and she runs the money. So it's a it's that kind of thing. So I think you work out who's good at what, and you do what you're gifted with. But still, it's his job to take the initiative to love and care for and, and look after her, and God calls on her to respond in a way that will make that easy. Mm. Um, three pieces of advice for creating intimacy. You said, be nice, smell good, and plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, intimacy. Um uh, Mark Gungor is a pastor who's got this thing, laugh your way to a better marriage. And his point is just um, simple acts of kindness will keep your your wife in love with you. Here's something about housework that's, that's just gold. Uh, men need to carry their weight around the house and do housework, absolutely. But gentlemen, if you're watching this, if you do something in terms of housework and then you draw attention to it, it will have no value. In fact, it'll be negative, right? Mm-hmm. You empty the dishwasher or you vacuum or you do the washing or whatever, and you say, oh, by the way, I did. Well, she knew that. Mm. And, and if you do that, she'll think you only did it to score points. Yeah, why she'll think that? Because you only did it to score points. <laughs> right? What she wants is actually that you'll be a grown-up 
and pull your weight around the house, mm. right? Mm. Um, uh, you think, oh, why, what if I do the housework and she doesn't notice? She will notice. Your wife sees everything. Right? So pull your weight. Don't draw attention to it. Why do that? Because you actually you're doing it as an adult. Yeah. Huh? Um, so that's one. Housework, pull your weight like that is great. Um, smell good. What I found out writing this book is that women have something like double the number of neurons in the olfactory bulb that's part of their brain that means they can smell. So women have a something like double the capacity for smell that men have. Yeah, true. Um, so when she says you smell bad, she's right in two ways. One is you're not good at it, and two, you don't smell good. Yeah. Uh, so if you would want your wife to be um, intimate with you, have a shower even when you think you don't need it. Shower, clean teeth, all that kind of You need to smell good because she, she can smell like a bloodhound compared to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one I thought is, and I must confess I've been over 40 years, I've tended to be a bit lazy on this, but is the idea of plan, plan the times when, when she'll have time with you to get in the mood to feel like being intimate. Uh, so if, if she's in the middle of doing, uh, you know, 20 different jobs and screaming kids and, um, you know, the dog's made a mess on the floor and then and, and she's exhausted at the end of the day and then you say, you know, how about it, love? She's not in the mood. She's not. Plan the time when you'll have time together. And um, when our kids were little, we used to plan a couple of times a year. We'd plan two days away. We get someone to mind the kids. We go away and, and, you know, stay in a motel somewhere just for a couple of days and get reacquainted again. Mm. And, was, and you think, hey, I remember you, and I remember why we got married. Oh, yeah, I like you. <laughs> and also it means that if the, uh, how can I put it, if the intimacy level is a little bit low, especially with kids or busyness or whatever, you know that in a few weeks' time you'll be away together and, you know, things will be nice. So it's that planning of when when you create the circumstances when she may want to be intimate. Mm. Now, as you were saying that before, you were talking about things are going well at the moment in terms of, um, and I mean, you're at the same age as life as me, basically mm. empty nester type. Yep, yep. Whereas, I mean, I think that the hardest season in our marriage was when we had four, th- three kids under four. Oh, it's chaos. Yeah. And I, I say to couples now, my mission in life is to say to young couples, don't set the bar too high. If you've got little kids, basically, if everybody's got clothes on and someone had something to eat today, that's a win. It's a win. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they ate. It doesn't matter what they're wearing. If everyone's got a pulse and they've had something to eat, that's a win. Now, what about you and Kathy and the Bible? Because... Um, actually finding time to read the Bible when you ah, get dressed. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, actually, most things I say, oh, not so. I, I have been pretty good at this. And that is you need, in Deuteronomy 6, God says, um, talk to your children as you walk along the road and, and, you, and you put the scriptures on your doorposts and build the context of hearing from God into ordinary life. And so we've just developed routines uh, that we've done as a family. So, for example, there is a Bible within reach from our dinner table, and it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that uh, when we eat at the end of a meal, um, I'll grab the Bible and we'll read a little bit of the Bible and pray. 
Now, that applies whether we have all of our families, a dozen people around the table, or just Kathy and I. And it's just a routine. At the moment, we're reading the story of Moses. Right. You might read a little bit. I, I ask her, what do we pray about? And she'll say something or other, and I say, do you want to pray? And she said, no, you're the dad, you should pray. That's why she likes it. So we pray together, and that's what we do each um, and it's been like that since little kids? Yeah, yeah, since little kids. Um, now, it's, diff- it's a bit more chaotic with little kids or we'd read a children's Bible, but that's what we've done. Um, uh, and it, it's been a really good routine. We've also had the rule, one thing we have got right, lots we haven't, but we have family dinner and the television is off. We will not eat with the television on. Um, and that just means that you're actually talking to each other rather than, you know, watching TV. So that's been good. I and mean, then Kathy and I pray to get, pray. We try to go to bed at the same time. We pray together before, before we fall asleep. So just those things. Uh, if you're a Christian husband or to be leading, it's not hard. Read a little bit of the Bible with your wife and pray with her day by day. Big picture goal for father parents. Oh, okay. Um, okay, a little bit parenting. Um, parenting's a very inexact science. <laughs> but, but the good news is there's also a margin for error. Okay. Here's my theory. Let's see what you think. Your aim as a parent, to help you with a big picture, your aim as a parent is to move your children, child or children, from being a baby or a toddler where they make no decisions and have no consequences to when they're a young adult, they will make adult decisions with adult consequences, right? So a toddler, uh, you decide what they wear, what they eat, or what you can get them to eat, where they go, what they do. They don't make any decisions. They don't decide water or milk. Yeah, that, no. That's right. Now they throw it around or they make a mess, but that's what By the time a child is... Let's pick 18, but maybe earlier. They have the opportunity to get inside and drive a ton of steel around the roads, um, drink or ingest whatever drugs or whatever they choose, and those decisions can end up ruining their life or the lives of other people. Mm. How do you move them so that they understand those the, the consequences? Right. So that that's your job, and it's slowly introducing age-appropriate consequences for what they do so that they understand that if you spend your whole life like the the snowplow parents as they call it pushing consequences away you're going to end up with a kid that just doesn't understand the way the world works Mm. so here's the theory in terms of discipline the closer that you can tie action and consequence to one another um, in other words, reality kind of does the disciplining. The closer you can do that, uh, the better it will work. Now, age appropriate, you've got the three-year-old walking near a PowerPoint with a pair of scissors. You think, well, I'll let them stick that in the PowerPoint. That'll teach them. No, 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 that's not age appropriate. Okay, But um, uh, the, the child who is called to come and have dinner and and continues again and again doesn't come mm. well maybe one night dinner needs to be put away and there's no dinner there mm. uh, oh well, uh, yeah, that and that will really you know um that 
there's a consequence built in. Uh, or um, I haven't done my homework and what it, well, uh, you can sit down and stay till midnight and help the kid do their homework, but it'd be better to say, well, you're going to have to explain that to the teacher tomorrow. Mm. There's a certain thing now. Does it always work? No, but I think that's worth thinking about. You mm. don't you don't necessarily shield your your children from the consequences of what they do. Let them feel that in an age-appropriate, safe way. Somebody once told me about the funnel. No choices at the beginning, lots of choices yes. at the end. And then most of my mistakes as a parent have been I either made the funnel too narrow or too mm-hmm. wide. Yeah. And yeah. Yet, yep, that's a good way. Yep. The, the problem was I'd just get it exactly right and then the child would grow. <laughs> well, that's right. They're all different. Ironically, you got to treat every. You need to be fair. You need to treat your children. Um, don't not have favourites, but they're all different as well. So being fair and consistent means treating them differently. It, it's it it can be tricky. Now I'm not saying I've worked it all out about parenting, but I think that's that's the big picture of what you're trying to do. Any nuggets of wisdom for now that your kids are young adults? Um, yeah, your, your, your role as a parent changes as they get older. My kids are now 38 through to 30 um, and smarter than me. Um, you, you become more of a coach, I think, as they get older. So uh, I don't give advice unless it's asked for. Um, I, I cheer from the sidelines. Um, if they ask advice, I give it. But it's it's the light touch and coaching once they get a little bit older. Great. Thanks so much for coming in. A pleasure to be here, mate. My guest, Al Stewart. And uh, Al is the National Director of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, the author of this new book out, The Manual, Getting Masculinity Right. We talked to Al a few weeks ago about chapters 1 to 10. And today we caught up with him on chapter 11 and 12 on manning up as a husband and manning up as a father. This has been Dominic Steele. We'll look forward to your company next week on The Pastor's Hour. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.